Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This week's question is, what's the best defense against a whistleblower? When the SEC first announced its bounty program a few years ago, there were a lot of discussions at the time about how to respond to this. I remember in particular an organization that I was working with at the time was seriously discussing whether they should have some sort of internal reward that they would offer for individuals to come forward with reports. Rather wisely, the organization determined not to do that. And I think there are two good reasons that come to mind. One's very practical. I don't think there's, depending on the allegations involved, there's probably not a way that an internal bounty could match the kind of dollars that are involved in some of the settlements we've seen from the SEC recently. And secondly, it really sends the wrong message. The message that most organizations have been focusing on over the last few years around reporting and open communication is that we want to speak up culture. We want to make sure that everybody is comfortable coming forward and asking questions and making reports whenever they need to. And I really think that's key to the first point about how you respond to a whistleblower. When you talk about culture, we actually have data on this. For those of you that aren't familiar with the what used to be called the National Business Ethics Survey is now called the Global Business Ethics Survey by the Ethics and Compliance Initiative. They have been looking at this issue for many years now, uh, among other organizations. And one particular metric that's come up time and time again is that individuals that find themselves in either weak or weak-leaning cultures are much less likely to report than those that perceive a strong or strong-leaning culture. Cortland Kelly was a third-generation GM employee, and he had been the head of GM's inspection program back in the early 2000s and had raised the alarm about issues with the Cavalier and the Cobalt, those cars that later GM admitted had ignition problems. All the way back in 2002, Kelly had repeatedly raised concerns inside GM about these issues, but he felt like no one seemed to be concerned and there were no actions taken. It got to the point that he actually became a whistleblower. He filed suit in 2002, and eventually, Jim denied the wrongdoing at the time, and the case was dismissed. The allegations contained therein later turned out to be true, but at the time, GM had a victory, and Mr. Kelly's career, as was reported in Bloomberg, went into quote-unquote hibernation. The interesting thing when you're talking about culture, though, is when these allegations finally made the headlines when the CEO of GM was called to the Capitol to speak in front of Congress about these issues. When they talked to the people responsible for the safety program internally at GM, they stated that they were too afraid to insist on safety concerns after seeing their predecessor, quote, pushed out of the door. The point here being, even if the culture had changed from the perspective of management, from 2002 to 2015, the perception of those employees who held those roles hadn't changed. They still felt that if they were to speak up or make waves, they would be retaliated against. So the first and most important thing 
that an organization can do to respond to the potential for a whistleblower is to first measure the perception of the culture from the perspective of the employees and find out how comfortable your employees are or uncomfortable, as the case may be, about speaking up. How do they feel about organizational justice? How do they feel about their avenues of reporting or asking questions or raising concerns? If you aren't already measuring this information, this gives you a baseline to have an understanding of where your needs are, where you need to address resources to try to change that perception. This leads to a second major area to address when you're contemplating response to a potential whistleblower, and that is a focus on the middle. A while ago, I was speaking with a chief compliance officer who's responsible for a program that um, spanned several different countries. And they had a pretty sophisticated and well-documented program that included quarterly certifications from the regional managers about their compliance with certain aspects of the program. And when we were talking about the overall tenor of the program, the culture of the organization, and tone from the middle, the CCO brought up these certifications as proof that he had strong tone from the middle. These managers you know, certified on a regular basis that they were doing the things that were prescribed in the program's rather detailed materials as to what they should be doing. Turned out later when we were actually conducting surveys and interviews, digging a little bit deeper into the program for an assessment, that while many of the managers were doing the things that they needed to do, several of them weren't. The ones that weren't still were certifying that they were. They just weren't doing it. And if you talk to some of the people that were in their business units, they didn't necessarily feel like they could approach those managers about compliance issues, concerns, and questions. The point is that you can't measure tone from the middle based solely on the representations of the middle. The effectiveness of tone from the middle is measured at the rank and file. People that you're ultimately trying to reach through the management. If you're trying to determine the success or failure, relatively speaking, of tone from the middle in your organization, you have to measure that from the bottom. Are the messages that you intend for those managers to impart to their employees getting through? And are the reports and questions and concerns that you expect to be escalated coming back up through the chain of command in an appropriate way? Those are the measurements you want to look for. I think it's important that you get buy-in, certainly, from managers. And it's important to educate managers as to their role and give them resources and arm them to do a good job as ambassadors for the culture of the organization and to create an environment where people can come forward and ask questions and hopefully not become whistleblowers. But you can't simply assign the duty to the managers and not measure the effectiveness of that attempt. One last area that I think you need to concentrate on when putting together your response to potential whistleblowers is to consider very specifically retaliation within the organization. The ECI, along with the data I spoke about a few minutes ago regarding perception of culture and reporting, has found that those who experience retaliation are much more likely to report outside the organization as whistleblowers. In fact, they're nearly 50% more likely to go outside the organization. That's pretty significant. They also noted that whistleblowing is more likely to happen when management is involved in the misconduct. So addressing both 
actual retaliation and fear of retaliation is key to encouraging people to come forward and report. And it's important to understand what retaliation looks like. It can be the perception that you're not getting a promotion, that you've been reassigned or demoted. It can be very nuanced. And key to addressing how you encourage people to come forward internally and avoid going external to the organization and become whistleblowers is understanding how retaliation is perceived in the organization and to address that. And that goes hand in hand with working on the culture and also encouraging managers to be primary communicators about all of these issues. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot is if you want to avoid having a whistleblower, you need to focus on your culture, invest in the middle, and understand the perception of retaliation in your organization. These three things overlap, and they're vitally important to keeping people reporting inside your organization. Dick Dubay is Executive Vice President, Chief Audit Executive, and Chief Ethics Officer for Old National Bank Corp, headquartered in Evansville, Indiana. ONB, the holding company of Old National Bank, is the largest financial services holding company headquartered in Indiana. With $14 billion in assets, it ranks among the top 100 banking companies in the United States. Old National was founded in Evansville in 1834, but its footprint today includes Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Dick joined Old National as general auditor in January 1997, leading the internal audit function for the company. In January 2001, he was named chief audit executive, and in July 2008, he took on the additional role of chief ethics officer. As ethics officer, he's responsible for developing policies and programs that deal with ethics-related matters, maintaining ethics training and education programs, overseeing the company's hotline reporting system, and updating the company's code of ethics. Dick has over 40 years of internal audit experience in the financial service industry, and he holds several professional certifications. Welcome, Dick. Well, thank you, Eric. Happy to be here. Dick, can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up as the chief ethics officer at Old National Bank? Well, Eric, uh, I've been in the uh, financial services industry for uh, almost 44 years now and and totally in in internal audit. And so back in July of 2008, when our CEO came, came to me and was thinking about establishing an ethics function, and was really asking me who I thought should be the ethics officer. And, and, and in fact, he already, uh, he already knew that, that where he wanted to place that function was within internal audit. And so after a bit of discussion, he, uh, we ended up stating that the ethics function was going to resonate and stay with the uh, internal audit function, and I was going to be the chief ethics guy. And, and so it ended up being a natural transition into, into the ethics function, having uh, the knowledge of the control uh, environment, the corporate governance related at uh, at Old National, and so it was a natural, uh, like I said, natural transition into that that ethics position. Already had a seat at the table as the chief audit executive, and uh, reporting directly to the chairman of the audit audit committee. And so uh, the ethics function just naturally rolled into the audit committee as as a reporting uh, structure. And so getting the uh, ethics training the ethics function, the code of conduct, the hotline, all that under one umbrella within my, uh, within my role was uh, just, like I said, a natural transition into, uh, into the position. So it evolved greatly, and, and we've had some uh, really good successes over the last uh, three or four years. 
And if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self before you assumed this role for ethics, what would that one thing you would tell yourself be? Oh, God, I would say uh, off the top of my head, there's, there's a couple of things that, that kind of stick out. And, and at the risk of being too cliche, I would say doing the right thing, even when no one is looking, I guess is the thing that, that kind of I would like to tell myself when I thought I'd have been younger. And really, I think making that first impression and building that trust and competence really uh, would really builds up your, your self-esteem and then, and then your stature within, within your position and or your company. And I think it reminds me of, of an experiment that the uh, a Northwestern University psychology professor did a few years ago where he asked several of his students to uh, flip a coin in private and to determine what task they were going to have, uh, was going to have to do. And so one task is going to be very laborious and tedious, whereas the other task was, was going to be a more fun event. And so it was strangely... Uh, curious that only 10% of the uh, students flipped the coin honestly and did it once. So it goes to show that we really have a tendency to fool ourselves when it comes time to making those ethical decisions. And so I think, uh, I, I think initially uh, what, I, what I think of when, when you ask me that question is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. I think that's good advice to anybody. If you could peer into your crystal ball what one or two trends in compliance and ethics do you think will be important over the next few years? I would say in the financial services industry, as, as I think of uh, what, what the future could lie, a couple of things that come to mind. And one of them is regulatory compliance. And the second would be uh, economy slash interest rate. When I think about regulatory compliance, I don't think that anywhere down the road that uh, it will certainly become any easier. I think regulatory uh, compliance will become more onerous and challenging and, and, and costly to uh, banks and, and financial services companies. And so I think the pressure to continue to uh, provide shareholder value could become more challenging. And, and so is how do you maintain that, that culture and that corporate governance and integrity that, that we've built up over the years and continue to maintain that? As, uh, as regulatory compliance and interest rates become uh, a much more of a, a continuing events and, and making it tougher for the financial services industry to, uh, to provide that shareholder value. And so I think that's where I think we continue to have to challenge our associates to maintain that integrity level and, and provide those, those takeaways that, uh, that they need to be productive and to be successful in their, in their jobs. And I think what leads to that is we have to make sure that our leaders make it easier for people to act ethically and not expect people to uh, act unethically is what I would state. Well, Dick, thank you for joining us today and answering our three questions. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.